Hello and welcome to season two of the Late Discovered Club, the podcast that aims to give late discovered autistic women and marginalised genders a voice. We bring you real life self-discovery stories and compassionate conversations with some truly incredible women and people from all walks of life and through an intersectional lens, helping to deconstruct stereotypes and give the next generation visibility. Created and hosted by me, psychotherapist Catherine Astor, whose own self-discovery came at 42. With the behind the scenes expertise coming from my eldest daughter, Katie Ava, this podcast really is a mum and daughter collaboration. And the podcast is entirely funded by you, our listeners, and we need your continued support to keep sharing these important stories and shifting that narrative. We would love to welcome more community members and champions throughout season two. And we've created a home for you, our own mighty online community space, so that not only can you support us, you can connect and find that sense of belonging in our community too. Thank you to everyone who supports our work in your own way. The coffees you buy us, the reviews you leave us, and the emails you send us. It all matters. Our stories matter. Your story matters. Welcome to the show today, Crystal. And today we're going to be shining a light on your late discovery story. Now, you discovered your dyslexia and ADHD, didn't you, just over a year ago um, in your 30s as you were midway through your master's in behavioral and economic science. So what was it for you then after discovering this about yourself that triggered um, a thought process or a, a light bulb moment in you that you started to consider autism um, for yourself? What was it that made you explore that? Yeah, um, good question. And I think with the diagnosis for dyslexia and the understanding about the ADHD, as I dive deeper into understanding what the symptoms were, how it shows up, what it looks like, and how so many different types of neurodivergence overlap, I started to look further into autism, although this was something that was in the back of my mind since I was, I don't know, late teens, um, but always ignored it largely because of culture, um, you know, the odd friend mentioned it and taking the mic, so I just dismissed it and ignored. But I think once I learned a bit more about dyslexia and ADHD and then autism, I was like, hold up, yeah, there's something there. And then reflecting back upon kind of the struggles I had when I was at university largely, yeah, that's what kind of got me to have a light bulb moment and be like, ah. Mm. And and your late teens then, what, what was it in your late teens that you recognised about yourself? It was the social aspect largely. Um, so in my, during my bachelor's, uh, so late teens, I started uni about 18, 19, yeah. Doing my bachelor's, I struggled at university in terms of relating to people, um, the whole, and actually at college, what am I talking about? At college, it was exactly the same. Yeah, so before that, so it was definitely my late teens. I didn't connect very well with others. I wasn't part of any kind of groups. I kept myself to myself and I I just literally struggled physically, mentally, overwhelmed, but just dismissed it I, I just okay I'll just be by myself or I'll go and do this by myself or go home early or not go for drinks with everybody else and I just kind of you know after a while it starts you start to notice it because you're very alone 
Um, I wasn't sad as such. And then the same thing happened during my bachelor's. And that's where it was much more uh, obvious because, you know, I'd not go to class and I'd stand outside the classroom in tears and go home um, to the point that I had to redo my last year because of that, because I didn't actually get the work done. So it was definitely the social aspect aspect where it was really, yeah, there's something here, Chris. Yeah. And you, you touched on culture there as well, didn't you, as you were growing up? So tell me a little bit about that. What, what does, where does that intersection of culture come into to this story with autism for you? Yeah. Yeah, no, really good question. It's funny because it's something I really want to dive into and talk more about. So culturally, having, whether it's depression or anxiety disorders or definitely dyslexia, ADHD, any of those things, um, for a lot of cultures, it's unheard of. You don't talk about it. It's very shameful. Um, You know, even within my family, I think when I said to my family, and I laughed because that's all I can do, you know, I said, this is what I've been diagnosed with, or this is where I think I am. You know, the questions were like, are you sure you answer the questions right? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> okay. Um, and a lot of shame in terms of don't tell anyone, people may, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So way back then, I mean, how I've, you know, expressed that now is due to education and understanding what's happening within the culture. But back then, I wasn't even aware of that. I was literally just in it that actually someone said you might be autistic what are you talking about no dismiss cut that off completely um because it wasn't okay and wh- and where's the visibility for you even culturally of of seeing an autistic woman um growing up i mean was that was that even in did you have a narrative did you hear stories did you understand <laughs> how autism perhaps presented in women definitely not i think the only example i ever would have heard of any kind of brain related disorder or anything like that would be a, a white male and they were seen as problematic kind of outcast that's it so there was no relation to to see that that could be a reality no and this is why this visibility of seeing and hearing these stories is is so paramount especially to the next generation of autistic girls and autistic women because Obviously, still talking about your childhood, I want you to think about a message, a compassionate message that you could give to a younger version of you. If you could go back, what would you be saying? There is so much comfort that I would like to give to myself as a child. I've grieved. In fact, I started grieving before I figured out I'm autistic um, because I... I couldn't put my finger on it, but I knew that I'd experienced a significant amount of trauma. I just couldn't figure out what it was because it didn't look obvious. Um, but I think what I would really want, I would, what I really would want my younger self to know is that actually my instincts were right. I knew there was something seriously wrong and I know that knew, no one else could see it. And I felt I felt very disconnected from reality because of that. Um, and it was just overwhelming in in how confusing and how isolating and how lonely it was. So I would really want to tell my younger self, I want, want to tell myself that I was right. I was right. Um, there was something that I that that I didn't know that was a secret from me that no one knew and 
that I would find out the secret one day and that everything would be good and better. I mean, I, I honestly, I want to tell my 18 months ago self this because I was in such a dark place. So I think, I think some form of like validation for that young girl. I mean, ultimately I learned how to gaslight myself really young, really, really young. Like I'm, what I'm experiencing is trauma, but it can't be. What I'm experiencing is pain, but it can't be. What I'm experiencing is being disabled, but I can't be. Like it just didn't make any sense. Didn't make any sense. And that's why I felt so connected to Alice, to The Looking Glass and Alice in Wonderland. Because I felt exactly like Alice. So yeah, I was right. I was right. And it gets better. But God, it was a long way. I think it's so important because I think, I mean, I've actually been doing a, preparing a, a, a presentation I'm doing with um, Dr. Naomi Fisher next weekend called The Quitter. I think it is so important that we leave things more. You know, our children should be allowed to try things out and it not work out. We need to try things out and be able to leave too. I think it's so, so important. And I speak to so many women every week who are what I used to be. You know, I see my old self in them. They're carrying it all. They're carrying their children who are too unwell to go to school. They're carrying their husband who apparently aren't emotionally available and can't cope with that situation. So they're carrying that for them. They're carrying in-laws and mother's expectations on that situation. And they're doing it all because they think they should. It's part of that perfectionist thing that we cling on to as autistic or undiagnosed autistic women. Um, and it's, it's something I think we should just put in the bin. We, you know, we, why do we carry all this for everyone else and think that we should? Just on that fact that many women can't access a diagnosis, therefore they feel disempowered to ask for adjustments because, you know, we need to be requesting this before we get to a point of disciplinary. But this is where so many women in our community find themselves, that they're at the point of being disciplined, about to be made redundant or kind of pushed out or not able to access a promotion because of where they've got to because they've not been able to ask for these adjustments and it almost comes in too late and you mentioned that didn't you about try and try and request these adjustments as soon as you can so do you need to have a formal diagnosis to request adjustments yeah okay well I mean look the really simple answer to that is no you don't need to have a formal diagnosis but I guess the more complicated answer to that is if you don't have a formal diagnosis and you wish to bring a claim that your employer has failed to make adjustments or they have treated you less favorably for something arising from your disability, so you've been made redundant because of something that you do uh, arising from um, uh, neurodivergency, then you, you, you file your claim with the employment tribunal. The first thing the tribunal would say is, are you a disabled person? And you would then have to say yes. And even if you didn't have a, a diagnosis, you were just self-diagnose and you could say, yes, I am. But the tribunal would ask you to prove that. You would have to show that you are a disabled person. And the definition of disability uh, within the Equality Act, it's uh, not a hugely difficult threshold, not a hugely difficult burden to, to get over. And people who are neurodivergent, they, they will be disabled because they're going to tick all the boxes uh, very quickly. 
um, to, to, to be covered by the Equality Act uh, and bring a claim for failure to make adjustments or discrimination, you have to have a physical or a mental impairment. Well, it, it, it could be both, couldn't it? But it'd certainly be a mental impairment. Uh, and it has to have uh, a substantial effect on your normal day-to-day -day activities. And what that means is not just your activities at work, your activities from the moment you go to bed through sleeping all night to getting up and going to bed again at night. So if it disturbs your sleep, it disturbs your eating, if it disturbs your talking, if it disturbs eye contact, reading, listening, you know, it doesn't matter if those things don't show up in the workplace very obviously, you will still be uh, classed as a disabled person within the meaning of the uh, Equality Act. Um, so ultimately it is for a tribunal to determine whether or not somebody has a disability it's not for a doctor it's not for occupational health it's for a tribunal but you have to prove it to that tribunal and without any formal diagnosis it may be difficult having said that there are some cases where people have had formal diagnosis um, or a formal diagnosis or an, an indication anyway and the tribunal said well i don't think you meet the test because you know you seem to be functioning perfectly fine um, so, yeah, I mean, my, my best advice would be to try and um, gather all of the evidence to make sure that you can say, well, I do have a, a physical and or a mental impairment, which has a, a substantial effect, which just means it's more than trivial uh, on my normal day to day activities and it's lasted for more than 12 months. And if you say yeah. that to your employer, honestly, your employer would be um, advised against turning to you and saying, well, prove it. And I really mean that, you know, if you say that to, to most employers, they should react in a positive way. They should anyway react in a positive way. They should engage with occupational health at their expense, uh, which could be, you know, route into getting a diagnosis. So, but, yeah. but you can see, can't you, the double discrimination here for many, many women who are locked out of a system. Like Kate, I was talking about episode 13, goes to a GP and a GP says, well, you're going to have to write me a letter to justify why in your 40s as a successful woman um, deemed successful, why I should consider referring you for an autism assessment because it costs a lot of money on the NHS and you need to justify this. And so many other stories where we can't access a diagnosis. So if we can't access a formal diagnosis and we go down this self-identifying route, and then we find ourselves, and again, so many stories where we find ourselves in these situations in the workplace and we don't have a formal diagnosis and we've not self-disclosed early on because actually the environment isn't even safe to self-disclose in. You can tell, as you were able to tell, that this is not a safe place for me to self-disclose.